0: Dot .com Thanks for spending time with me and let's go into the show. Did you know that as you age, your natural production of collagen declines? This results in fine lines and wrinkles, joint pain, dark circles under your eyes and more. You see, collagen is like the glue that holds your body together. And luckily, there's an easy way to feed your body additional collagen. It's bone broth. Studies show consuming bone broth protein can boost metabolism, support gut health and digestion, reduce cellulite formation, can help grow healthy skin and nails, support joints, and more. But if you've ever made bone broth, you know it's time-consuming. And who really has the time to simmer bones for 48 hours? That's why I like to use bone broth protein powder. Simply mix a scoop with hot water, add to a smoothie or even a baked dish, and reap all the benefits of collagen-rich protein in just 30 seconds a day. While most companies use the hides or the skin of the animal, which are less nutrient-dense than the bones, I always prefer using bones, and that's why I love Paleo Valley bone broth protein, because they use 100% grass-fed beef bones from cows that are never fed GMO grains or any grains, for that matter. They even test for over 40 pesticides to ensure this is the purest bone broth protein on the market. These bones are slow simmered to extract as much collagen protein as possible. They don't use any chemicals or solvents, just good old-fashioned bone broth that's then gently powdered. Now, when we think about bone broth, again, we think about the protein collagen, and there's several key amino acids in there, including glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline, and those help to reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles and help reduce cellulite, They're also critical for anti-aging as they help regenerate bones and help muscle and support heart health. Studies have shown eating bone broth soup on a regular basis can increase fullness, reduce your calorie intake, and lead to weight loss over time. And the amino acid glycine is really important for good sleep. In fact, A 3-gram dose of glycine improves sleep by lowering body temperature and boosting serotonin levels, which is a key precursor to melatonin. And it does that without causing daytime drowsiness. Each serving of 100% grass-fed beef bone broth protein contains 15 grams of collagen protein and 3.4 grams of glycine, so you get that critical amount. So to get the Paleo Valley bone broth protein, just go to paleovalley.com forward slash DR Jockers and use the coupon code Jockers to save 15% off your order today. You guys are going to love this. So try it out today. Again, go to paleovalley.com forward slash DR Jockers. Use the coupon code Jockers at checkout to save 15% off your order. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Got a really great guest. This is Dr. James D. Nicolantonio. We're going to talk about salt. We're going to talk about minerals and how critical they are. You know, most of us have heard that salt is bad for us. And so we're going to talk about that as well and how much salt we should be consuming for optimal health. So if you guys don't know Dr. James D. Nicolantonio, he's a doctor of pharmacy, cardiovascular research scientist, very well respected. He's been a co-author of over 250 publications, in the medical literature. And he's the author of five best-selling health books: The Salt Fix, Superfuel, the Longevity Solution, The Immunity Fix, and The Mineral Fix. And of course, you can find him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. He's always got uh, some great posts that you guys can check out as well. And also his website, Dr. James D-I-N-I-C. So check out his website, sign up for his newsletter as well. He's always dropping really good information there as well. So Dr. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, the first book that I read that uh, that you had put out was The Salt Fix. And I know for myself, and I've been on a low-carb diet and doing intermittent fasting now for 15 years, that I craved, in fact, part of my health recovery, I was actually craving salt. And this was back in you know, 2005, 2006, I had irritable bowel and I was recovering from that. And I craved salt. I needed it. It was the only way I really would get energy. And of course, you know, I was taking exercise physiology and I was in medical school. And, you know, I was being taught that uh, you know, to avoid salt and, and, and to reduce it, but I knew that it was improving my health. And, you know, you obviously wrote a whole book about, about it called The Salt Fix. So let's start there. Let's talk about salt, why it was demonized, why it's so important for our health
1: it was originally demonized just due to blood pressure and, and very similarly there were scientists back in like the 1950s that were demonizing salt similar to how we demonize saturated fat they would look at correlations to where certain populations that uh, consumed a higher amount it was correlated that you know high salt intake may increase blood pressure so actually it was a it was a clinical study looking at six populations but Inner salt came out in the, you know, obviously, like basically 50 years later, looked at 52 countries. And when you eliminated the four um, primal, basically, you know, populations that were consuming very, very low amounts, you actually had a drop in blood pressure as salt intake increased. So they were only, basically, the studies were short studies, looking at a limited amount of populations, trying to find a correlation. And really that that's where most of our guidance comes from, because all of our nutritional guidance stems from the 1970s you know, basically where this was before you had systematic reviews and meta-analyses of actual clinical studies. Right. And in, in those dietary goals that came out um, in 1977, and then the first dietary guidelines in 1980, they started recommending low cell for everyone. Uh, low saturated fat, low total fat, high amount of carbohydrate intakes. So everything really stems from there. And that's really where basically we went wrong.
0: So these were basically large epidemiological studies looking at kind of surveys of what people were consuming. Is that correct? And right. also obviously, which those studies can show correlation, but they can't show direct causation. So there were just hypotheses that were brought about. And sometimes hypothesis when, when scientists say them enough. You know, they no longer become hypothesis, they become, you know, scientific truth, I guess you could say. But ultimately, we didn't really have true interventional studies that were
1: demonstrating that, that actually was causation. Exactly. I mean, I mean, even worse, too, is they were cherry picking the population yeah. we were looking at. And same thing happened with saturated fat. They cherry picked the six country study. And even though there was, you know, a total of 23 countries, Uh, so when you added all the countries back, there was no increase in, in heart disease with saturated fat. And same thing with salt. When you added, you know, 50 countries back, you didn't see that rise in blood pressure with higher salt Mm -hmm. intakes.
0: Yeah. So important. And of course, when people are on low carb diets, like a lot of my listeners are, or if they're fasting, there's an even greater need for salt. And a lot of people don't realize that. And oftentimes they can develop things
1: like the keto flu as they get going with it. Right. Yeah. So what happens most people are consuming a moderate to high amount of carbohydrates every single day. And then they discover keto and then they drop the carb intake and their insulin levels drop and insulin helps the kidneys actually hold on to salt. So typically the first one to two weeks, you have a a pretty massive loss of sodium and fluid, which leads to the keto flu. And so the chronic effects too, of going on a low carb intake is that glucose actually helps you absorb sodium. Mm. And, gluc- and glucose helps you move sodium in and out and same with sodium vice versa in and out of the cell so you 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 chronically need more amounts of salt when you're not eating uh, a large amount of carbohydrate yeah,
0: absolutely, and and when you start implementing that salt, you definitely feel better. Now, what are, what types of salt should people be looking for? Like, what are the best types that are out there? There's Himalayan salt. There's gray salts like Celtic, uh, Redmond's real salts, another good brand. What are some of the benefits of each of those, and which which of those do you really prefer? So,
1: how I like to look at it is, salt typically will have two minerals besides sodium and chloride in, in fairly clinically significant amounts, either mm-hmm. iodine or magnesium. So the salts that will help support iodine would be the pink Himalayans, including Redmond. If mm-hmm. you're someone who needs more magnesium, you have to go and reach for the Icelandic salts the, or Australian flat salts. They typically have you know 10 times, at least 10 times more magnesium. And some of them mm-hmm. can actually have up to 180 milligrams of magnesium per 10 grams of salt. So that would be like the Celtic and you said like Australian gray salt or Australian uh, flatland salt? Yeah. So Celtic salt actually does have a decent amount of magnesium. That's typically around 40 milligrams of magnesium mm. per 10 grams of salt. The higher uh, magnesiums would be the Icelandic. Uh, okay. Icelandic. Uh, yeah. Icelandic salt. One of them is called saltwerk And then uh, a lot of the, the Australian flat salts that have basically dried up from ancient oceans also have very high amounts of magnesium.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And then how about Redmond's Real Salt? I know I've heard you say that you really like that salt as well. Right. That one has about 170 micrograms of iodine per 10 grams of salt, and we and we need about 150. And so I do like that, especially with exercise because you lose not just salt in sweat, you actually lose about 50 micrograms of iodine per hour mm. of exercise through sweat. So it's a, it's a good salt to actually get iodine from. Yeah.
0: And iodine is one of those things a lot of people are deficient in, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so there's still I think around oh, at least 48 countries that are considered iodine insufficient. Yeah. Um but there's that there's that narrow range with iodine for for a lot of people where you want to sort of keep it between the 150 and 300 microgram per day mark, mm-hmm. and if you start going over that, sometimes you can cause thyroid issues, especially if you're not optimizing your selenium intake. So if right. you start doing a lot of iodine and your selenium's really low, you can start messing mm. the thyroid f- function up. Yeah,
0: for sure. And so are there any issues with, with just typical table salt, iodized salt um, that's out
1: there? More of the issue is not getting salt. So if you don't have a choice or mm. if you look in your cupboard and you don't have like these unrefined salts, of course, yeah. sodium and chloride is the primary benefit of salt. Mm-hmm. Of course, would it be better to get something that's unrefined, that doesn't have dextrose, that's not treated with a lot of harsh chemicals, or even sometimes to use explosives to get some of those salts out of the mines. So if you can get unrefined salts, great. If not, it's still more important to support your salt intake throughout the day.
0: Yeah. So your typical table salt's better than no salt. But if you have the preference, you're looking at some sort of unrefined salt, some sort of really high quality salt. If you need more magnesium, you're looking at Icelandic salt or those Australian salts that you had mentioned. If you have a greater need for iodine, you're looking at more of your Himalayan sea salt or your Redmond's real salt. Exactly. Cool. All right. So good to know as far as that goes. Now, your most recent book here is The Mineral Fix. Okay. So let's talk about. Key minerals. Obviously, we're already talking about salt, magnesium, a little bit. You know, what are some signs that people are deficient
1: in, in minerals, and, and what's the prevalence of this? Well, if we if we look at magnesium, because everybody likes to talk yeah. about that, and that's the easiest one. We have the best data on it. About fifty percent of Americans aren't consuming the RDA for magnesium, which is about four hundred milligrams per day for an adult. Uh, most people need about an extra hundred and fifty milligrams just to get to the RDA, which is close to optimal, but really not. Optimal intakes of magnesium seem to be more around six to 700 milligrams per day. Hmm. So most people are actually about 300 milligrams to 400 milligrams uh, non-optimized. They need that much more to get to an optimal level. So high prevalence of magnesium deficiency. And now you might say, well, that's just from intake data. If you actually look at um, IV magnesium load tests on certain individuals, if people have been on a thiazide diuretic for six months or longer, 80% of those people are magnesium deficient. 50% of people with high blood pressure or heart disease at any given time will be magnesium deficient based on IV magnesium load tests, which is the gold standard. Basically give someone an IV load of magnesium, and then you see how much comes out in the urine over 24 hours. If the body's holding on to a lot of it, you know you're deficient. It's like the best way mm-hmm. to test for magnesium deficiency. Now, of course, that's an invasive procedure. So the one blood test that has actually been shown to match IV magnesium load is something called mononuclear blood cell magnesium. So you can try to order that. Or if you can't, simply looking at a blood test, and if you're sitting on the lower end of normal, that's highly indicative that you are actually deficient because the body tries to maintain a normal level. So by the time if you actually have an a significantly low level of magnesium, you've been deficient for a long time. But if you're riding on the lower end of normal, that's that's actually indicative that some of your organs are actually deficient in magnesium. Right, exactly. And so I can't
0: remember exactly the measurements, but your typical blood test, you're looking at your RBC magnesium and it's like, if it's under two, can't remember exactly the, the measurement there, but if it's under two, then you're deficient. Which is very rare that I see somebody actually flagged deficient on the lab, right? Um, but you're saying basically if you're you know bordering that 2.0, 2.1, or something like that, that you're already deficient. And I know that that test really is you know that that lab in general th- those ranges are really wide. So you right. know it's it's never been something that you know in functional medicine that we really don't use that RBC magnesium as a as an indicator. We're looking more at symptoms, but it makes sense with what you're saying that if you're trending, starting to trend low, then um,
1: that's a sign that you're already deficient. Right. So basically, if you're looking at like a blood test, not not yeah. an art, not a red blood cell, but if you're actually just looking at like a serum or a serum, yeah, yeah, typically normal is considered even down to 1.7. You're still normal. You won't be flagged deficient. Right. But we put out a, a, a review paper indicating that if you're less than two milligrams per deciliter, that's highly indicative of mm. magnesium deficiency. So you can see that you have a reference range of let's say one point seven to two point two being normal, but less than two is likely actually deficient.
0: Okay, so if you're, and that's a that's a very easy test to run. Um, I think it's just part of your your uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, right? So most of our listeners, if you're getting like yearly blood work done, most people are getting complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel should be in there. You're looking at that serum magnesium. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if it's under 2.0 milligram per deciliter, that's the measurement Yep, and that's clearly a sign that you're magnesium deficient, but there are other symptoms too, that people can look out for as well. Right?
1: Absolutely. And we got to be careful, though, too, because a lot of people have what's called subclinical mineral deficiencies where it's yeah. not you don't even have symptoms, but you're deficient. Um, but yes, a lot of people will have symptoms too. Uh, typically muscle cramps, eyelid spasms, headaches, photophobia. So if you're if you are intolerant to light, that's pretty indicative of, of magnesium. Mm. deficiency. Oh, that's good to know.
0: Yep. Also, if you have electromagnetic sensitivity, I've heard as well, that can be an indication of, uh, poor magnesium status. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So really good things to know. And also like muscle twitching, um, you know, there's a whole list of symptoms. I know you go over it in your book as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of muscle issues, nerve issues can be related to magnesium deficiency headaches, different things like that. So yeah, it is a really big issue. And, you know, when you supplement with magnesium or you eat a lot of magnesium rich foods, the way that you know that you have too much magnesium typically is loose stools, right? That's really the only major downside for most people. There are some people that may be a little bit sensitive here and there, but for most people, it's just loose bowels. Has that been your your observation as well?
1: Yeah, totally agree. Um, Magnesium is sort of uh, self-limiting in regards to if you consume too much, you'll essentially have those loose stools. So it is a very safe Um, compound. I do find that people do better um, actually taking slightly lower doses more frequent throughout Mm. the day rather than large bolus doses. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. The large dose is good if you want to move your bowels, but, uh, (laughs) but for really optimizing magnesium status, you want to take those lower doses throughout the day. Yeah. Now, how should somebody, you know, you mentioned low doses throughout the day. What are some of the best magnesium rich foods? And there's a lot of different
1: supplemental forms. What are your, some of your favorite forms for supplementation? So I actually like, I consider this almost like a dietary source and a supplement at the same time, Mm -hmm. and that's um, high magnesium mineral waters. And the reason Mm. is because the bioavailability is basically as high as you can get because it's already dissolved in solution. And so the ionic form of minerals, particularly calcium and magnesium, is going to have basically your highest absorption. And so I I typically consume waters like Gerald Steiner or San Pellegrino, but Gerald Steiner is a little higher. It has about 100 milligrams of magnesium per liter. So if I consume two liters, I'm getting 200 milligrams of magnesium for the day, yeah. which when I add that to my diet, that's going to help get me to the 400 that I that I'm shooting for. Spinach is is a good source of magnesium. So typically, I look at more plant foods as a better mm-hmm. source of calcium and magnesium, and animal foods is sort of like iron, zinc, um, B12, things like yeah. that.
0: I just want to interrupt this podcast and take a moment and tell you about the importance of electrolytes. We all need electrolytes in order to produce energy, in order for our nervous system to function well on a daily basis. And most people are just not getting enough electrolytes, especially when they start on a low carb ketogenic style diet or if they're doing intermittent fasting. And this is because when you go on a low carb diet or if you're practicing fasting, you get a big drop in insulin. And insulin's job is to actually cause you to retain sodium and other electrolytes. And so you actually start urinating them out. So when you're on a low carb diet, you're burning fat for fuel, but you need more electrolytes. In fact, there's a condition called the keto flu. And this is where people feel really bad when they start on a low carb keto style diet or if they start doing intermittent fasting and they don't have the electrolytes to support them. This is why I'm a huge fan of Element. It's L-M-N-T, it's the name of the company. And they contain a science backed electrolyte ratio. That means a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, none of that stuff. You know, the average sports drink has 260 milligrams of sodium, that's not enough. 65 milligrams of potassium, that's a really low amount. They don't have magnesium and the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar. That's gonna spike your blood sugar and your insulin levels. Element, again, has a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No sugar, it's flavored with stevia. And right now, as a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you you can get a free sample pack of seven different packets of each flavor. They have great flavors, citrus, raspberry, watermelon, orange, again, all flavored with stevia, all natural sweetener, it's not gonna impact your blood sugar. They also have an unflavored, so if you're not into that or if you don't do well with stevia, you get the unflavored as well. But you can get the sample pack now for free and you only cover the cost of shipping, which is roughly $5. Just go to the site drink element, so drinklmnt.com forward slash drjockers. Again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash drjockers to get your free sample pack of element. Again, element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Guys, try this out. You're going to see a big jump in your energy and your performance. I mean, if you're a high-level athlete, you need electrolytes. Try this out today. So eating your magnesium-rich foods, drinking your magnesium water, now, when it comes to supplementation, what are some of the better forms? Because there's magnesium glycinate, bisglycinate, threonate, orotate, right? citrate, right, all the different types.
1: What should somebody be looking for there? So uh, magnesium orotate is interesting. It actually acts as a prolonged release beta alanine. It gets converted to that substance. So it's interesting because beta alanine is sort of the best way to boost carnosine levels. And then it's actually like magnesium orotate circumvents the pins and needles that you get from beta alanine. So it's, a, it's really good for exercise performance. There are studies testing magnesium orotate in heart failure showing significant improvements in survival. 3 and 8 is great for brain health because it can cross the blood-brain barrier. So anything related to brain health, 3 and 8 is going to be probably your best option. Citrate is good for inhibiting acid loads in regards to high animal-based diets or also for helping with loose stools if you go high doses, um, helping with constipation, excuse me. And then um, glycinate is probably one of your better absorbed uh, magnesiums because it's chelated to glycine right and glycine is necessary for for phase 2 liver detox
0: right and a lot of people aren't getting enough glycine to begin with so that's right. a good form yeah 3 and 8 like you mentioned for brain so for good memory you know there's good studies there you know on hippocampal function so memory retention and preventing against you know memory loss things like that so really good as far as that goes citrate you know the, the other interesting thing about citrates is they help bind to oxalates in our gut. So whether you're right. taking like a potassium citrate or magnesium citrate or something like that. And a lot of people have issues with oxalates. We've talked about that on the podcast. So sometimes getting some, uh, some extra citrates into the gut and into the urine can help bind and pull oxalates out.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And actually citrate in the urine too helps reduce kidney stone formation. Yeah, because, right.
0: Uh, calcium oxalate stones. Calcium oxalates from forming, correct. That's right. Yeah. So really good. Okay. So we talked about magnesium and you know I'm, I'm huge on that as well. I really think most people respond really well to magnesium supplementation and you brought in that magnesium rich water too, which is a great thing. So you said San Pellegrino, right? It's an easy one that people can buy at the store.
1: You mentioned another type as well, another type of water. What was that? Uh, that one is called Gerald Steiner water. It's a German yeah. underground water And that actually has um, more bicarbonate in it and about twice the magnesium as San Pellegrino. Okay, Gerald Steiner. So with the bicarbonate, is it like naturally alkaline? Yeah, so it it contains about 1,800 milligrams of bicarb per liter. And what's good about consuming bicarb from a water is that's already dissolved in solution. So it's not like taking high doses of sodium bicarb that's gonna inhibit stomach acid. It's Mm -hmm. gonna be absorbed pretty quickly and move away. away from the stomach and get absorbed within 15 minutes
0: interesting and people can order that online because i don't remember seeing that at a store it's at um
1: a lot of grocery stores now is it
0: okay Mm -hmm. gerald steiner okay so we'll have to look out for that all right cool now let's talk about some other key key minerals you had mentioned iodine earlier let's
1: touch on that a little bit Sure. There's this really cool connection I talk about in the book between sodium and iodine. Sodium is like a a universal molecule that the body uses to move a lot of things around, including iodine. Without Mm -hmm. sodium, you cannot drive iodine into the actual thyroid gland and you Mm -hmm. can't drive it into the mammary gland. So basically what ends up happening is if let's say a lactating woman isn't getting enough salt, you're not going to be able to drive the iodine into the milk because you're not driving into the mammary gland, so that can be a big issue. Because we you know iodine's really important for you know at least the first year, especially yeah. for health, and obviously in utero too. In pregnancy, uh, salt and iodine very very important because you're you're basically it's like two blood volumes you're carrying, and so um, a lot of studies actually show that more salt in pregnancy, like twice a normal intake, seems to be optimal for a lot of women.
0: Mm. That's good to know. We just had a newborn, actually. So uh our fourth child. So yeah. yeah. So I had my wife obviously taking good salts, things like that, um, all along. But yeah, I didn't even know that. But yeah, iodine is super critical for for the baby's brain development. You know, when when mom is iodine deficient, oftentimes the baby's born and they're higher risk for mental retardation, for a lot of different issues with brain development. So yeah, super, super important. And that's interesting that there's this key relationship here with sodium and iodine as well. And earlier you had mentioned as well, iodine and selenium. Selenium
1: is another big deficiency. Well, there's this COVID connection too with selenium that yeah, you know, people true. That are from low selenium areas are at about a five-fold uh, higher risk of dying from COVID mm-hmm. and about a three-fold higher risk of having a wow. poor COVID outcome. And that's probably because selenium helps code our antioxidant enzymes and reduces protein oxidation. And selenium also helps support glutathione peroxidase. Mm. You know, in the mineral fix, one of the key things is that we need to think of minerals as antioxidants, not just vitamins. In fact, minerals are literally make up our antioxidant enzymes, including Mm. manganese superoxide dismutase in the mitochondria. So if you want to protect the mitochondria from oxidative stress as well, you have to have good manganese status. There's this um, importance of antioxidant functions with minerals, especially selenium, for su- supporting numerous a- antioxidant enzymes.
0: Yeah, selenium is critical for that. And that's an interesting note there that we have to think about minerals as antioxidants because we're typically thinking of glutathione, we're, th- we're thinking of vitamin C, vitamin E, you know, vitamin A, vitamin D as antioxidants but we really have to look at, and we're thinking of, you know, carotenoids and all these types of phytochemicals, but minerals really play an important role. You know, selenium, you mentioned helping recycle those glutathione proteins and and helping form glutathione, uh, super critical. And also zinc, zinc plays a really critical role in immunity and so many other things. Can you talk more about zinc?
1: Sure. So I think because most of us have been taught that animal foods are not healthy, Yeah, the zinc zinc intake for most of the population is is very low. It it might not actually be low from an RDA perspective, but from an optimal intake to help with antiviral effects, um, you're talking, we're probably consuming three times less than what we should be. Because Mm. a lot of the studies, um, when you have like a cold or a flu, they give around, you know, per day, 60 milligrams of zinc. So the average yeah. person might only be consuming 15 milligrams per day. So we're, we're pretty low on the, on our zinc intake. And that definitely hurts our immunity for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. And really with zinc too, when you're taking higher doses of zinc, like, especially if you're trying to fend off a cold or a fever or flu, you know, typically you'll get nausea if you're taking too much. Usually mm-hmm. that's kind of like the warning sign. And there's also a zinc tally test. Are you familiar with that? No, nope. kind of like you take, basically you drink like this, uh, zinc, this form of zinc, it's basically like an elemental zinc. And normally it doesn't taste good. Like, and you should notice it, but if you're not noticing any flavor with it, it's a sign you're zinc deficient because zinc plays such a critical role in like our sensations, like drinking, like, like with COVID, for example, one of the classic symptoms was people were losing their sense of smell. Right. Right. And that was very much related to the zinc deficiency because it's so important for those sensations.
1: Right. Good point.
0: Yeah. And so, and zinc and copper also play a critical role and you can actually get your serum copper, uh, plasma zinc test done. And you can look at a ratio there. Usually I'm looking at like one to 1.2. This is something that, you know, my health coaching team, we look at people's copper to zinc ratio. Cause if you're taking too much zinc, you can deplete your copper. Uh, that's rare though. Most of the time people have more copper than zinc, unless they've been supplementing with really high doses of zinc. Uh, And copper is more easily absorbed than zinc. Have you found that as well?
1: Yep, yeah, there's this whole story um, on zinc and copper. And you know, I think probably from a standpoint of 60 to 70% of the population is really consuming a lot of these refined foods. Most people are deficient in both of these minerals. Right, yeah, it's critical. And then you also need good stomach acid to be able to
0: absorb zinc. And it's a kind of vicious cycle because you need zinc to produce stomach acid. Right. But if you are have poor low stomach acid, which most people do because they have gut dysbiosis or eating too quickly on the go, things like that, then you can't absorb zinc and a lot of these minerals like iron,
1: things like that effectively as well. Yeah. And then here again, salt ties back into this because chloride is required for the hydrochloric acid and low Mm. salt diets have been shown to reduce stomach acid and increase the pH of the stomach. So you, you don't digest food as well on a low salt diet, which means you don't absorb all your nutrients as well on a low salt diet.
0: Mm, so right back to salt where we yeah, started. Salt, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when it comes to salt, tying back into this, how should people be consuming salt? Should they be like intentionally taking like some salt, putting it on their tongue? Should they be just salting their foods? Well, are there, are there natural foods that they can be eating that are more
1: sodium rich that they can be consuming? The problem with, Salt intake nowadays is uh, several fold. Number one, we don't consume the salty blood and in interstitial fluid. So we right. and we were, we were pretty much hyper carnivores for a couple million years. When we invented fire and our brains got smarter, we started hunting larger animals and we started consuming lots of more salty blood. We don't have those salty fluids anymore, so we, and especially when you go on a low carb diet and you start eating real food, that food no longer has the salt that you need. So you have to add it somehow, whether you salt to taste, which is typically what I do. I'll salt my food to taste. Yeah. And I listen to my salt cravings because just like we don't try to measure out how much water we need per day. We listen to our thirst. We also have a salt thermostat that controls how much salt we need to eat. And we know this because humans used to follow animals to salt licks. So animals have this inherent understanding that when they're deficient, they go out and seek it. They get a greater reward when they're deficient from it. And then after they've had too much, they'll get this sort of hyper salty taste and they'll stop ingesting it. Same thing happens with humans. So if you don't listen to your salt cravings, you can get yourself into some serious trouble.
0: Yeah, super important. They used to say, you know, you're worth your weight in salt as well, right? That was the the term because salt's so good for preserving things, And so, you know, for food storage before we had refrigeration and things like that, you know, we obviously used to use salt to help store food. And it's a key part of fermentation. So a lot of fermented foods, like for example, when I'm fasting, sometimes
1: I just crave pickle brine, right? And it's really the salt that's in the pickle brine. Absolutely. I mean, it's something I drink all the time. If I'm having like a sugar craving, I'll just have some pickle juice. And then that typically that craving goes away pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Again, it's it's the salt. So if you're having a lot of cravings, particularly sweet, sugary types of cravings or like cravings for chips, usually that's an indication
1: that you're not getting enough salt. Precisely. Yeah. And, and all these low salt products are sort of causing us to overeat because your yeah. body is going to consume three bags of those low salt potato chips to get the salt that the body demands.
0: Man, such a good point. So you're gonna have more of these kind of starchy cravings driving up your blood sugar, causing more of a just blood sugar roller coaster, more inflammation in your system. You're really not addressing the the root and, and what you really need there. So yeah, critical with that. Now, you know, when it comes to salt as well, so you're you're basically just salting your foods to taste. That's what you're looking for. Are there other symptoms? Have you noticed one thing I've noticed is I'll have people like if they have allergies or some sort of like a histamine type reaction. Mm. A little bit of salt on the tongue. And mm. actually, salt helps to have like a natural antihistamine effect. Have you noticed that? Interesting. Um, I haven't actually. Yeah, um, but I've never really looked, looked at that before. But I've, are... I've tried this out with a whole bunch of different people, okay. and most people tell me they feel better, right? Well, that's awesome. So the rationale is that basically um histamine acts as a triage system for hydration. Mm. So you want to follow it up with water too. You want to drink some water. Uh, And so when we are dehydrated, it's, we, we start naturally ramping up histamine to bring water into major, you know, visceral organs, our brain, things like that. Mm. And sometimes, you know, for some people they are overproducing the histamine. So they start to have basically, they're not able to break it down effectively. So they start to having unwanted responses like runny nose or a headache or, you know, feeling drowsy, things like that. And then adding a little bit of the salt, getting some of the minerals in there and the water helps you know direct the water where it needs to go and right. uh, it helps
1: calm down some of those symptoms. So really interesting. That, that makes complete sense. And the largest number of emails that I've gotten in regards to how salt has fixed someone's health is atrial fibrillation. I, mm-hmm. I've had so many emails of people yeah. saying, James, I, I just I just decided to kind of say no to my doctor on this low salt diet thing that I've done for years. I Within a day or two of eating just what my body was craving, my AFib is gone. So yeah. it's really interesting on the, uh, the electrical current and conduction with the heart that if you're not getting enough salt, you can throw people into arrhythmias. Yeah, so interesting. Now let's talk
0: about potassium as well mm-hmm. and also ways to measure. Because like again, on your comprehensive metabolic panel, you get a measurement for your sodium levels and your potassium levels. And does that really tell us anything? So let's let's talk about that as well.
1: So a sodium level really tells you more on your hydration status. So typically if you are dehydrated, you'll have a high sodium level. Mm. And if you have overconsumed water, which typically happens like in triathlons, you'll have a low sodium level. Right. So it doesn't really tell you your salt intake. Really a BUN A measurement of plasma volume or dehydration is is more of a better look at your blood volume and that's controlled by your sodium. So if you have a high BUN, that's pretty indicative of, uh, as long as you're consuming normal amounts of water, pretty indicative of not getting enough salt and having too low of a blood volume.
0: Good to know. Yep. So BUN is something, again... You're going to be looking at it's you know one of your normal kidney markers. It's a comprehensive metabolic panel, so you can look at that. Typically, you know, ideally it should be like under 20, somewhere around like 11 to 20, somewhere in that range. If it's up over 20, it's a sign that you know there's some issues going on. Typically with the kidneys uh, not being able to filter out as much of the urea and it's getting up in the blood, and so you're saying, hey, now this this is a sign could be a sign as long as you're hydrating well that right. you may be deficient in sodium. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Now, how about potassium? Let's talk about the importance of potassium, uh, how to test for potassium levels.
1: The biggest mistake that I see people do is they just start increasing their salt intake and and typically they have a terrible potassium intake and that's, yeah. that's a disaster for salt retention. So, you know, when you go below three grams of potassium per day, you can't really handle a, a normal amount of salt very well. So you have to make sure that you're hitting at least three grams of potassium throughout the day, preferably four grams, because that helps you be able to handle uh, a normal amount of salt, whether it's, you know, getting in and out of the cell and and magnesium has very similar effects too. So really if you fix about four key factors, insulin resistance, low magnesium, low potassium and high acid load, most people should be able to handle a normal amount of salt and they'll actually benefit Mm. from that.
0: Now, three to four grams of potassium is a lot of potassium. So what are some of the best
1: food sources? To get that? Beans, potatoes, so lightly cooked potatoes. A lot lot of people fear potatoes, but they're one of the most filling foods if you don't drench them in butter and you don't overcook them because they're a good source of fiber and they're an excellent source of potassium. So I like to consume some lightly cooked organic potatoes. Also spinach is a fairly good source of potassium. Um, some more of your plant foods. I mean, animal foods too, because it's in the cell, are fairly good amounts of uh, potassium. But typically, if you're strictly eating a carnivore diet, it's going to be very, very difficult to get above three grams of potassium per day. That's when I start adding in like beans or, or lightly cooked potatoes or greens, things like that. Gotcha. Now, what if somebody's fasting? Like what if they're fasting
0: for a day, maybe doing a three-day fast? Should they be looking to take a potassium supplement,
1: something like that? So by day two of a fast, uh, typically most people are in what's called mild metabolic acidosis. It's not life-threatening, but it does start breaking down the bone. And that's why you see an elevation in magnesium and calcium in the urine on day two of a fast is because of the mild metabolic acidosis. Uh, So the simplest thing to do is to take bicarbonate mineral waters when you fast, because that'll inhibit the acid load from all the acidic ketones that are being produced. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have a much lower loss of magnesium and calcium out the urine. There doesn't seem to be a huge potassium loss with fasting. And when you do see it, it's just basically due to the breakdown of muscle and not like a, like a true loss, so to speak, because you're, you don't yeah. need as much potassium because after, you know, a couple of days of the fasting, you are losing some muscle. Right. Uh, so I don't know if you need potassium per se, but you definitely need salt because you continually lose sodium despite not eating any. Right, for sure. Yeah. And most people notice they feel a lot better when they're fasting, when they are doing the salt or doing
0: like pickle juice, pickle brine, like you were talking about. Now, let's talk about low carb diet because you mentioned potatoes, beans, typically not things people are consuming if they're on a ketogenic diet. They might cycle out of ketosis and consume a sweet potato, you know, consume squash, beans, white potatoes, things like that. But if you're on a low carb diet, what are some of the best potassium sources? Avocados, are they a good source? Lemons, limes,
1: what are some of the good things to, to consume? Yeah, definitely avocados and fish. Fish are um, yeah. a good source. If you can tolerate tomatoes, like mm-hmm. red sauce is a good source of potassium too. So and that's, that's gonna be a low carb source. And then, if you you can make beans more of a low carb source by again lightly cooking them and even cooling them for eight hours in the refrigerator, and and then you know, basically you're consuming most of it as becoming fiber. You're not even you okay. know absorbing the glucose. Huh, interesting.
0: Yep. Wow. So um, so again, avocados. How about lemons
1: and limes and uh, berries? Are berries a good source of potassium? Those would not be a very good source of yeah. potassium. I'm trying to think if there's anything. I mean, nuts are a fairly good source of potassium. Yes. Nuts, green leafy vegetables. Yep. Yeah, all good stuff to
0: be consuming. Yeah. Interesting. Now, you mentioned manganese earlier and how important that is for mitochondrial function. So, where are we getting manganese? That's one that most people, you know, unless you are, you know, in our world, Right? You're not hearing a whole lot about manganese out there in mainstream media. So let's talk a little bit about that, what it does,
1: and where you get that. What are the best food sources? So manganese is probably one of the most common mineral deficiencies because it's in such limited amounts of foods. And so typically, unless you're eating certain types of fish and very high amounts, it's very difficult to get manganese if you're on a carnivore diet. So most people probably need a manganese supplement if you're eating animal foods. Now, if you are eating some unrefined whole grains, then you can get manganese in, in fairly decent amounts. And that's why I consume Ezekiel bread, because it helps give me manganese, magnesium, and a few other minerals that are kind of missing in, in animal foods. Interesting. Interesting. So it's mostly going to be in your whole grains, is what you're saying. Yes. But I mean, the the problem with that is that 99% of whole grains in the United States are highly refined. So it's really trying to find those true unrefined traditional whole grains because you don't really know from the label if 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 the flour is ran through a steel roller mill and it's just going to spike your glucose. So what typically I look for is just a sprouted grain and yeah. no no flour. Just avoid anything that says flour. Typically, right, right. So the Ezekiel bread. So
0: what I'm hearing is that if somebody's following a real food keto diet, so if they're following a low carb diet, they're taking out grains, they're not consuming mm-hmm. legumes, you know, different things like that. Would they be more at risk for mineral deficiencies? Or is there a lower
1: need for minerals when your insulin levels are are lower? Right. It, it, so compared to like the standard American diet, I would say no, that they're not at a higher risk, except for certain nutrients. One being manganese.
0: Mm, interesting. Yep. Yeah, because I think a lot of the research, you know, looking at minerals and how much minerals we need, it's probably mm. done on people that are trending more insulin resistant. True. So I'm thinking that, you know, and this is just my hypothesis, that possibly the more insulin sensitive we are, the better we are at driving minerals into the cell and, you know,
1: obviously being able to utilize it. So we may need less, we may need a little bit less. 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, magnesium, potassium, you have to use yeah. insulin to drive them to the cell. Right. You know?
0: It's hard to do that that research, though. You have to find all these people with a certain level of, you know, fasting insulin and then, and right. then see what they need, right? So. Sure. But, you know, that's just an idea that, hey, the better your blood sugar stability is, right, the better, of course, also the better your stomach acid levels are in your gut microbiome, possibly the lower the amount of some of these minerals that you may need in your diet. For sure. Because you're going to absorb them better. Yeah. Well, and I I know that um, coffee as well, a lot of people are drinking a lot of coffee. And
1: what, what does coffee do, particularly to salt? Yeah, that was one of the biggest eye openers when I was researching for the salt fix is that Caffeine, and particularly coffee, because there's yeah. other compounds in coffee besides just caffeine, is a tremendous salt waster, both sodium and chloride, to the extent where if you consume four cups of coffee, you lose an additional half a teaspoon of salt. And it's it's the most commonly consumed beverage around the world, second to only water. So most of us are consuming some form of coffee or caffeinated beverage. Probably when you add up caffeinated beverages plus coffee, it probably yeah, takes
0: over water, to be honest. Yeah, you're right. So people are drinking so much caffeine and you're depleting salt. You said four cups of coffee, which is roughly equivalent to what? Like 300 milligrams of, so of caffeine or so? 300 yeah, typically like
1: 80 times four, whatever that is, 320. Yeah, so
0: 320 milligrams of uh, of caffeine and, and you're losing a full teaspoon, did you say? a Half, a, half, a, half teaspoon. a teaspoon of salt. So this is why it's important. I have an article on my my website about five ways to make your coffee more effective. One of the ways is actually adding salt to your coffee. Put the salt yeah. in there. Yeah, it's a great strategy. Yeah. And, and so that way, obviously, the minerals that you're losing, you're getting back. And also, of course, when people are exercising, right, which hopefully you guys are that, that are listening, you're also losing the salt there too. Right. Good. Now, are there any like sort of sports drinks or can somebody make like a homemade sports drink that you would recommend that kind of adds in some of these things?
1: So what's interesting is that A lot of the information on sports performance they were just simply trying to replace the salt that is lost through sweat during exercise and that makes sense that that would be enough but what ends up happening when you when you undergo fairly high intensity performance is that the blood flows to the working muscle and then as core body temperature rises it also starts pulling away from the muscle into the skin to release heat so you have this drop in blood volume that occurs mm. with exercise, and it happens you know, pretty quickly. Within 5 or 10 minutes, you can lose 10% of the blood volume to the heart. So boosting blood volume before exercise with high salt solutions actually dramatically improves performance, both in the heat and at room temperature. So there's been a lot of studies that have looked at this. And really the best regimen is you start ingesting these high salt solutions about 90 minutes prior to competition or exercise. And you slowly consume it over 60 minutes, 30 minutes before the event. And you boost blood volume by about 8% and thus preventing the drop that occurs during performance.
0: Wow. That's good to know. I know uh, my friend, Rob Wolf, he's got a He's got one called element. I don't know if you've, you've heard of that, yeah. but uh, it's very high in sodium and you taste it right away. You know, it doesn't have any of the sugar and all that kind of stuff. So I've been using that and definitely noticing an improvement with it, uh, but it is salty. So you got to be careful. You got you to gotta water it down and, you know, drink it over time. Uh, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, super important. So you know, really good stuff. And your typical stuff that's out there—Gatorade, Powerade—I mean, there's just so much sugar and additives and artificial flavorings. They do have the sodium
1: in there, but uh, it's about one tenth the sodium though that you actually should. Yeah, use. it's low. So yeah, it's, it's low, like really low. Um, right. And then, like you said, even if you get like Gatorade Zero, the sugar doesn't really matter too much. Yeah, uh, it doesn't really help that much. It's the salt that's really boosting right. the blood volume. Yep. So the benefits people are getting are from
0: the salt that's in there, but obviously it doesn't have as much salt as, as you need, which makes it actually probably more palatable, right? Because, uh, right. you know, it's cause it's not overly salty. So people are drinking more and more and more of it, which they do get hydration up. But of course, you know, if they've got the sugar in there, the additives, artificial flavorings, you know, all that
1: stuff's going to have a detrimental effect. Exactly. And if you don't get the salt solution fairly close it doesn't have to be exactly, but fairly close to the saltiness of the blood. It's going to be difficult to boost blood volume. So you can replace some of the salt loss through SWAT, which is great. But the enhancement of performance, you really need those higher salt solutions.
0: Yeah. Now, do you have any like uh, like quick home- homemade recipes that somebody like, let's say they're going to go work out later on today and uh, they don't have any of these products at home, but they've got some salt, maybe some bicarbonate or whatever. Uh, what's like a homemade recipe that somebody can
1: make? So what I typically do is I use the 1,000 milligram to 10 ounces of fluid rule. Mm -hmm. And typically, if I'm going to do something high intensity, I'll I'll have at least 2,000 milligrams of sodium and 20 ounces of fluid. I'll do that, you know, start 90 minutes before, I'll slowly consume that. And I'll also make sure I typically add about 4 grams of glycine to the solution, makes Mm -hmm. it more palatable, helps you absorb the sodium and the fluid better. And glycine also cools core body temperature down on its own. So it's, it's a great way to spike the salt solution to just make it more palatable and enhances its benefits.
0: Wow. Very interesting. Really, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. James, you know, your new book, the mineral fix really, really great book. I mean, we touched on some of these key minerals and how important they are. Uh, can you give just a, another overview and any, anything that we,
1: that we missed that uh, it, the listener may be interested in, in getting this book? You and I briefly touched on it, and that is the fact that the first thing to fix mineral deficiencies is to heal your own health, reduce the yeah. refined carbohydrates and sugar, get the inflammation down, stop eating the junk and the garbage. So get, right. the, get the junk out of the kitchen. And then you can start absorbing and utilizing the nutrients and your minerals better. And then from there, you can start building a healthy diet and basically optimizing different minerals using, and I have some strategies in the book, which foods you should combine um, to get a full spectrum, optimal amount of minerals.
0: Yeah, really good stuff. So a lot of food combination types yeah. of principles. So you can be eating and getting the full uh, nutritional synergy. So really good stuff, guys. Check out his book, The Mineral Fix. He's also got some gr- other great books. If you want to learn a deep dive on salt, he has got The Salt Fix, The Longevity Solution, The Immunity Fix, you know, with everything that's been going on with COVID and whatnot. This is a really timely book that he wrote last year, The Immunity Fix. You want to give a quick summary
1: of that? Yeah, the immunity fix was basically that we were sort of hyper-focusing on um, vaccines and uh, masks, wow. and we weren't, we weren't looking at the the major risk factor, which is poor metabolic health. And that's driven right. through poor diet and poor mineral status. And if you fix those things, these any type of virus is much less virulent.
0: Absolutely. So, some great books to pick up, guys. You will really enjoy Dr. James's books. He's got a bunch of them out there. So, if you want to learn how to optimize your health today, optimize your immune system, and then live longer as well, you know, he's got the Longevity Fix as well. So, check that out. And again, his website is Dr. James dinic, dot com. You can sign up for his newsletter there. Check him out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Dr. James, thanks so much for your time.
1: Any last words of inspiration for our audience? I would say don't fear salt, you know, fear sugar. That's yeah. definitely my key's logo. I love it. So good. Thanks again,
0: Dr. James. And guys, we'll see you on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.